and welcome to episode two of Feckin' Metal. My name is Fergal Trainer. I'm your host, and with me this evening is a very special guest. His name is Kyle McNeil. He is the singer and guitarist from Seven Sisters, a UK-based heavy metal band. Thanks a million for joining the show. Kyle, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so Seven Sisters are a band I've been listening to quite a lot over the last couple of years. Um, I know you've been around for a few years as well. You formed around 2013 mm-hmm. um, and you did a demo tape shortly afterwards. Um, can you give us a bit of background on Seven Sisters? So this this kind of podcast is aimed at people who are interested in heavy metal, but it's, it's really aimed at the heavy metal that I'm interested in, which is classic sounding old school heavy metal that has a lot of melody. And obviously Seven Sisters are a band that uh, are in that bracket. So could you just give us a slight bit of background on how Seven Sisters started and um, just a, maybe just the first couple of years of how you got going and, and how you got to where you are? Yeah, no problem. Well, it, it initially started with just Graham and I, the other guitar player, Graham. Um, we have been talking for years of, of starting a band because I moved. I, so I'm not from London, obviously, even though we're a London based band. I moved down to London to study um, at a university. I studied music. And, um, you know, Graham and I have been friends since a little bit before, since I moved down and we'd be, you know, drinking all the time in the dev chatting about starting a band. And, you know, we were both big heavy metal fans of that sort of style that you just described there, just classic metal, loads of melody, twin guitars, all that kind of stuff. But we always ended up in bands that weren't that Graham, Graham, Graham played in a lot of, um, extreme metal bands before a lot of black metal and stuff like that. Um, I was in like a three-piece thrash metal band back up here in Burnley, where I am at the moment. Um, and that was this kind of municipal waste worship, pizza thrash kind of stuff. So we we finally just got our shit together, really, and started jamming in, in, in my front room, in my flat, uh, with no real aim of doing anything, just to play some music that we kind of liked. And then pretty quickly... Um, once after we decided to do that, we ended up with a bunch of songs, which ended up becoming the the Warden demo tape. Um, and then I sort of set about recording that myself, um, which is how we've done most of our things. But it was like a really shoddily done demo tape, in in true fashion, I suppose. And then we just jokingly decided, like, well, let's why don't we just release it on cassette tape? Because that'd be funny. Because that's what the, everybody did back then. Um, and we got Josh. Winnard, who was the uh who is the vocalist of dark forest now he was just joining at the time when he did the demo for us which is why he didn't end up singing for us really because he was like i can't really do two bands at the same time so he sang on the demo and did a really good job actually um and then yeah we we sort of put that online and through the the wonders of the internet people started listening to us and I think a video of No Guts No Glory started circulating and we sold out of our tapes in a couple of months which was mental because we weren't even a real band at the time it was just two guys and a drum machine really um so then at that point we decided to actually start a band and maybe play some shows and things like that so we got a we got a group together we got Adam uh, our first bass player who was who I was living with at the time we were friends from university and then we got Steven to drum. And then uh, sort of September, November time um, of 2014, we actually, I think it was November 2014, we played our first show <clears throat> ever. And it was an absolute 
fucking train wreck of a gig it was awful it was such a typical first gig like you couldn't make it up it was like all sorts of problems it was only 20 minutes long and we managed to completely fuck it up but um yeah i think because the because of the scene that we are part of is so close-knit um once we released a couple of songs and we were showing that we're an active band we were getting offered gigs quite like quite quickly and quite regularly to, to begin with which really helped us out like to because we were we were playing in front of audiences and on stages that were way bigger than we actually deserved to at the time to be honest with you i think we we played we played a bro fest and that was like our fifth gig ever as a band and we were on this massive stage in front of a fairly decent audience albeit a, a sunday morning everybody was hung over and you know we sort of didn't really know how to deal with those situations at that point but it did it did help us quite a bit um so sort of going on through 2015 we released a lost in time single which was the first thing that i sang on as a recording um i just ended up singing because we we were looking for a singer and we did actually audition one guy and he was really nice but it just didn't it didn't feel right and i think we the material that we were starting to write was drifting towards leaning on the more instrument instrumental side of things um and we'd, we'd be doing a lot of that and a lot of guitar and stuff like that. So I think a four-piece for us really worked. Uh, I didn't really know how to sing. I've been figuring it out since I started, and I still am, to be honest with you. Um, but it was it was a fun challenge. And I think now, looking back, I'm really glad that we didn't get a separate singer and be a five-piece. Because I think that it's a big part of our sound that we have like big instrumental passages. And there's not like you don't have to start singer sort of stood there awkwardly waiting for the guitarist to get over doing their stuff. Um, okay, yeah. so yeah, that's one thing I wanted to mention. So you released your uh, demo tape, The Warden, and you released it on an actual tape, a cassette. So yeah. cassettes have kind of become back in vogue over the last, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, was that a deliberate uh, approach to be like, well, people are starting to listen to cassettes again, let's release it on cassette? Or was it just a, the most convenient method of releasing a demo back then for, for a band just starting out? Uh, on, honestly, we did it because it was a we were taking the piss. Okay, <laughs> it, it was it was a real it was a joke because it's like who who listens to cassettes anymore, you know? And it, we we put it on we put it online, so it was available to listen to digitally and and all that kind of stuff. But for a physical release, we just thought it'd be really cool, and it was just to please ourselves that we'd record it and release it on a cassette tape. And we did like twenty five purple ones, which some obviously people have, and they're like super rare now. And we did a, I think we did 125 like white ones or clear ones. I can't remember. And yeah, it, it honestly, it was just a joke. It wasn't like an intentional statement of we are trying to be super old school. It must be on cassette tape. If, if anything, it was probably taking the piss out of that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but we are, we've always, we've always had that attitude. It's always very tongue in cheek and we're, we're sort of adamant that, if you take, if you start taking heavy metal too seriously, you're sort of missing the point. The whole thing is theater, and you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to mention that actually. Yeah, so Josh Winnard was your original vocal vocalist on the Warden demo, and you were never intended to be the original singer or the singer of this band. But as you mentioned, it wasn't really meant to be a band at all. You were just kind of trying out some songs and and playing and jamming with with friends and stuff. Um, is singing is singing then something that made you nervous when you realized you were 
you'd painted yourself into this corner then all of a sudden of like <laughs> oh, oh shit i'm gonna be the singer all of a sudden and uh was, was that something that made you nervous was it something you had to practice uh or how did you you know grow into the role you're in now which is obviously the the, the front man of a band that has had two albums and uh, several other releases uh yeah it it it's probably maybe nervous isn't the right word. I think there's some definitely the thing that I'm the most conscious of. I'm I've been playing guitar for about sixteen years now. I'm fairly confident in my guitar abilities, and that's kind of second nature now. But the singing thing is something that I've really had to focus on, and like hone in on very quickly over a shorter amount of time and under pressure because you're performing live and people have certain expectations. And I have expectations of myself as well. If I'm going to do this, I want to do it properly. And it's, yeah, I'm, I've always been super critical of my own voice, and which I think any singer is, really. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you are. I think everybody has has that. But it's been, a, it's been a really interesting learning curve for me. And it's only now, you know, two albums in, like you say, that I'm actually starting to feel comfortable. We did a, we did like an acoustic release um, of just some reworking of tracks, and I, I think that's the best I've sounded so far. And I'm, I'm I'm coming off the back of doing a tour, which was like you know a couple of weeks of singing every day. That really helped, and I can I can understand now when you listen to, you sort of go back through the back catalogs of of these bands that were starting out and they were fresh, and then maybe like an album or two in, the singer's voice sort of changes all of a sudden. I think sax it's really obvious with Saxon. His mm. voice just takes his turn and all of a sudden he starts sounding like Biff. But it's like there you sort of realise that it's that singing, it's it's sort of it's a muscle, you know, it's like like any other muscle. It just needs exercise and they've been working at it routinely and finding what they get what they what works for them. And then all of a sudden they start sounding like themselves. And I think I'm only getting to that point just now. I've, to be honest with you, I think I've been pretty shit up until this point. But I never intended to be a singer. So, yeah, well, what I what I wanted to ask you actually was: so you you weren't intended to be the singer, but was singing something you would have done? You mentioned you played guitar for like sixteen years, but was singing along to songs something you would have done? Like, uh, would you have known what you sounded like as a singer before you were kind of forced into this position of being a singer, or was it you were learning yourself as you went along how you how you sounded as a singer? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. I was learning what, sort of figuring out what I sounded like. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't sing in a northern accent <laughs> because that would be quite confusing for a lot of people, I would imagine. And we'd just end up sounding like the Lancashire Hot Pots, which I do not want to sound like. So um, that was a thing. But that just came naturally. I'm not trying to force like a, a voice. That's just what came out. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's taken me a while to figure out. And it's just by doing it, you know, it's it's something that I it's something that I could do. Singing and playing was something that I could do because the the band that I was in before the the thrash metal band, I I was the vocalist of that, but it wasn't singing. It was just yelling down a microphone in a in a you know as horrible a fashion as you could really muster at that point. So the whole singing and playing thing, the that I had down already, but um the the sort of art of singing and the practice of singing is something that i'm still learning but thankfully you know i'm i know a lot of really good singers and i just ask them questions and we just discuss things um danny who's the singer of eliminator oh yeah he's one of my childhood friends we grew up together since we you know since, you know our early teenage years 
and he's an incredible singer and he's really delved into it he's really gone into um focusing on techniques and, and all that sort of stuff i suppose you have to when you've got a voice like him where it's such high register so i just ask him questions all the time and just get you know advice good stuff so you mentioned a few things there actually that i'd like to mention uh so you talked about the dev that's the devonshire arms uh i assume sorry yeah the devonshire arms in camden <laughs> no I, I was only there recently um i went over to london back in march before the whole world went into lockdown uh, mm-hmm. to watch visigoth and uh i uh i went on a night out then after the two gigs and i was just walking off the tube and i met these two random guys and i was gonna go to um what's the other pub called the black heart or not the black heart sorry that's where the gig was on uh the other main pub, the end of the world. Ah, uh, the world's end. The yeah. world's end, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just walking up the tube. I was on a solo jaunt just to go, to go over to see Visigoth. And these guys saw my Iron Maiden patch jacket and they are like, Maiden! And they're like, where are you going tonight, mate? And I was like, oh, I'm going to the, the world's end. And they are like, don't go there. Go to the fucking dev. Yeah, <laughs> so, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah good so advice. I went to the dev. What a, what a great bar. In, it's in awesome. London. Yeah, and yeah. It, it that's the first place that I went to when I went to london so i didn't know anybody who lived in london i knew graham a little bit because of um gigs happening in lancaster so he went to university in lancaster which is why he knows a bunch of people up there now eliminator are from lancaster sort of based there for a while so i'd go to see them play and then i ended up knowing graham so i messaged him like uh, can i stay at yours while i audition <laughs> for university he's like yeah whatever and literally the first thing we did was go to the dev yeah, and you know that's been our sort of local drinking hall ever since, and I love it. I love that place. We played we played so many gigs there, and we did our first album release show, you know, in inverted commas, at the Dev, and you know we've done a we've done loads of really sort of important shows there. And Chris, the guy who runs it, is an absolute gem. Like he he's just really supportive of any sort of any artist and bands. You know, he's he's one of the very few people that you encounter in this sort of industry who are just straight up and they there's no like ulterior motive that that is he's just a really nice guy okay good stuff yeah it's a very welcoming place i found uh, in my one trip there but uh mm-hmm. I, I i went there completely blind uh i'd never been there before and i made like lots of friends that night and everyone was yeah. very welcoming and, and yeah. sound and stuff so yeah it's a, it's a great rock bar or metal bar um i just wanted to talk about um so the name of the band seven sisters so you're based in london is that correct yes yeah but you're, you're you yourself are not from london where are you from originally so i'm from burnley which is sort of directly north of manchester okay um so you're based in london and as from from my research i did in advance you did kind of name yourself after the tube station seven sisters but then that developed into a bit of a theme for your first album it did yeah we sort of used that um it was i mean as as simple as i saw it on the front of a tube train and i thought oh that'd be a cool band name and it sort of went from there um but yeah we we sort we discovered once looking into it that there was actually some ties to greek mythology and it that helped a lot um sort of build an image of the band and obviously it became like the focal point of the of the first album that we it was like a a loose concept album you know it was based on a, a an old story of orion who uh, fell in love with one of the seven sisters and mm. ended up chasing her um as the you know there's a lot of that in greek greek mythology but um their chase is sort of immortalized in the stars because orion is sort of facing the pleiades which is the seven sisters so that's kind of what it was set on. Um, 
and that sounds infinitely more heavy metal than say, you know than seeing it on the front of a train but yeah than a tube station yeah <laughs> so yeah so the seven sisters were the daughters of atlas is it uh, that's right yeah yeah, and uh, they're they're immortalized in the stars. So you ha- actually have the Seven Sisters, the star constellation, on the cover of your first album. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So this is all kind of stuff I found out just through research. So to me, like the band name Seven Sisters, it sounds like a cool heavy metal term. And like the name of your second album, Cauldron and the Cross, the Cauldron and the Cross, it sounds like a cool heavy metal term. But if you do a little bit of digging, you realize that there's actually a lot of depth to these things. Um, I, I, as I find with a lot of heavy metal, sometimes you just think it's a cool name. You're like, oh, that sounds deadly. It's like uh, that's really heavy metal sounding term. But when you do a small little bit of digging, you realize, oh, there's actually a lot of depth to this as well, uh, rather than just being a cool sounding name. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it's fun to do that for yourself. You know, if you're going to be writing music or creating whatever you're creating, it's it's just about writing something or making something that's going to interest you initially it, it for me writing songs is a very selfish process i only write stuff that i want to hear i don't i don't write for anybody else uh if pe- other people like it that's a bonus um so it was it was just a case of let's just make it interesting and also giving yourself a brief of some sort giving if i give myself a brief and limit what i have to work with that in a lot of ways helps me be more creative because you it's like staring at a blank page with every color at your disposal it's like what the hell do you paint but if you limit your palette and you limit the medium that you're working with and and things like that it just helps you be more creative within that which is kind of why we've always drifted towards doing these concept ideas because i think it helps us with like uh with just with what we want to write and maybe not end up writing the same song eight times for every album it's more just uh trying to create a mood as well that that's an interesting concept so when, when you limit the subject matter you're saying it makes you more creative because other other than that you're kind of staring out into the abyss of infinite ideas yeah yeah and also when you're staring into the abyss of infinite ideas it's not that we have infinite inspiration so you probably just end up repeating what you already know which in the world of heavy metal is the chords E, C, and D, and the Iron Maiden gallop. You know, it's so yeah. you you end up writing two minutes to midnight again for the one hundred and fiftieth time. So it's it's kind of for me, it's it's a way of trying to divert that. Very good. That's quite interesting. I must ask you, uh, with your name Kyle McNeil, your love of Tin Lizzy, and your hair color, <laughs> is there a little bit of Irish in you, as Phil Linnett would say? I think uh, uh, going a, going a long way back. Yes. Um, immediately there's scottish in me uh on my mother's side but yeah i think going way back the the mcneil name was uh it sort of originated in ireland from what i'm aware of anyway i could be completely wrong but um it, there's a few different ways of spelling it my the way i spell it is more common in scotland i think the the, the mcneil that you would encounter in ireland is a max or mac yeah okay okay rather than a muck very good okay so uh, i just wanted to talk about your your demo so you talked about the warden there briefly uh, you released that on cassette in 2014 but uh interestingly for me anyway as a fan as far as i know none of those songs other than the campfire tales which we'll get to later none of those songs ended up on your later releases so none of the four songs on the warden ended up on the seven sisters album for example was that a deliberate mm-hmm. choice for the band uh, because a lot of other bands like you've, you've mentioned iron maiden 
you know, they used most of the Soundhouse tapes on their debut album. Uh, the likes of Metallica, they used reworked versions of older songs on their debut album, Kill Em All. Uh, was it mm-hmm. a deliberate kind of milestone? You're like, right, we've done the demo and now we're moving on and we're writing new material exclusively for the first album. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's always been something that I've, I'm very conscious of is just I want to just keep writing new music. That's That's the main aim for me in doing this you know playing gigs and and all that sort of stuff is is a really cool byproduct of me just writing songs because that's my that's what i love doing the most out of all of this writing the songs and then being able to mess about in the studio and bring them to life so i never really wanted to recycle stuff we could have at this point quite easily possibly even re-recorded the warden and the lost in time things you know and, and did it like a re redone version but i'm not interested in revisiting stuff that we've done before unless it's something like the campfire tales thing which is just a reimagining completely and in in a lot of ways almost a different song in some parts um that that sort of stuff interests me but i'm not uh, to be honest with you like being brutally honest i think it's lazy when i see a band release a five track ep that's absolutely awesome and then they go and release an album, and the album is just that five-track EP with three more songs. Yeah, just re- yeah. I, I'm just I'm not really into that. I'm like, just dig down and write some more material because they they must have it in them. That's true, and uh, lazy is the word that came to mind for me. Um, now, not being a writer, so I didn't want to say it, but you do see it a lot where people will release four or five songs and then they'll do a reworked version of those four or five songs later on, and it, it leads into something I wanted to mention actually. So, um. I don't know if you're familiar with the comments made by the Spotify CEO, Daniel Ek, uh, recently. Did you read about that or did you see it in the yeah, news at all? Yeah, I've, yeah I've, I've obviously I'm aware of it. It's kind of hard to avoid when most of my Facebook is musicians anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> so he said, uh, musicians in the age of streaming cannot record music once every three or four years and think that's going to be enough. Um, now, I personally, I think those comments might have been taken slightly out of context, but... Um, would you have the same mindset? I'm, I'm guessing maybe yes, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think you constantly need to be releasing new material on a regular basis to stay relevant? Um, or, or like, or what, did, what did you take from those comments? I mean, it, from his comments, in the context that he's talking about, sure, it would be great for everybody to start doubling their output to then put on his platform for him to make more money. I mean, he can personally fuck off, <laughs> but okay. the the idea of having to release more music now in the, in the sort of the, in this age in the way that people consume like media and art the way they do, yes, it probably does make more sense to release music more often. Mm. Um, but I don't think you need to do that to stay relevant. I mean, look at bands like Atlantean Codex. Okay, they're they're you know highly revered in this sort of heavy metal scene that we operate in. Uh, they even chart in their own country in Germany. They're a charting band, and they do the traditional thing of a, an album every two, three, four years. You know, they rarely play a show. They might play five shows in a year if if we're lucky. Yeah, and that's completely against what most, uh, you know, A and R managers would tell you in in you know the pop industry or whatever. Um, but then on the on the flip side, you've got bands like Haunt. Yes. You know, after touring with Horn, uh, Trevor and I chat quite regularly on Facebook and he's such an intense worker and he's very prolific and he's writing all the time but he, he has a setup where he does everything himself and he's got a studio in his house and he records 
and the the process of writing and then recording something to be released is almost the same process because he just does it himself yeah well haunt are insane it's, it's impossible to keep up with them even um i checked their Bandcamp yeah. page there recently i realized i'd missed an entire album because uh, it's, <laughs> it's not available on spotify yet yeah um, yeah exactly. they're on track to release like three three albums in 2020 which is is madness but um yeah it's not unheard of though because a lot of the bands in the 70s used to do the same i mean black sabbath released two albums in one year oh yeah yeah i know yeah um and i think haunter actually kind of like a model of what i was getting at when i said i think maybe daniel x comments were taken out of context in that they not not on spotify specifically but they tend to release constantly maybe in small amounts and then all of a sudden there's an album like i think one of the most recent albums there was like a song every week or something until it built up until the, there was right, a full okay. album available and, and bands like night demon seem to be doing that as well they were just releasing a song a yeah, month yeah. and then I, presumably at the end of this there'll be a full album as well um, yeah. and that kind of is, a, is a, a methodology of engaging with your audience i think to a degree um the sh- i think the, the, the struggle is keeping in people's minds and being like uh, on sorry I'm trying to lose my words it's it's just making your making yourself aware in the absolute mass of information that is you know um social media and you know social networking and when you're on facebook and instagram and stuff like that you you make a post and then within 2 seconds you know you've got like a 20 other posts to then scroll through so i think the 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 point of doing that is so that you are constantly popping up and people are constantly being made aware of your name like oh night demon oh yeah blah blah oh haunt have got a new album out blah blah and that is a really effective way of of you know sort of selling records i suppose and just being in the back of people's minds um so yeah i i'm i'm just work however you want to work i think certain bands work better in certain ways or whatever as long as i mean for me it it would be quite easy to do something like that you know, I'm, I'm, I've got my whole recording set up here. I could probably record a Seven Sisters album next week and then release it. But for me, the point of doing this is to be engaging with three other people in the band that I'm in and it to be a collaborative effort and just to be a whole process. You know, it's I'm, I'm not in here to chunk out material for the sake of chunking out material, I'd rather just enjoy the entire process. Okay. And I also like the idea of an album. Yes. You know, and it's 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 a start and an end and a, and a little bubble within itself. And that I think that takes a bit more time to do, just to craft something that is a work on its own. And then you can take that and, you know, like The Cauldron and the Cross yeah. is something that's just within itself and it's contained. And it's got its own little universe, you know, this next album that we're doing will be the same and it's that takes a little bit more time to do i think rather than just like you know maybe 10 four minute songs or whatever i get you so i'm, get, I'm getting from what you're saying you're a fan of uh, a full album more so than releasing in dribs and drabs uh, a song every week or a song every month or something like that yeah that wouldn't work for us i mean it'll work for other bands that where their music fits into that format but not not for us it doesn't interest me i'm a huge like fan of the whole experience of an album, you know, which is why I love vinyl so much. I don't love it because I'm supposed to, because I'm into whole school heavy metal. Mm. It's it's the whole experience, you know, when you get those wicked Roger Dean gatefold albums and it's like the artwork's incredible and then, you know, you sit and read the lyrics and it's a whole story that you're listening to. 
that kind of thing really really interested me so that's that's what i wanted to do with the seven sisters music that's fair enough okay and just to go back a bit so i was just uh, looking back on some interviews you've done previously and um people are asking you things like you know what was the first album you remember buying with your own money or, or first album you got into and uh, you mentioned a couple of times that green day uh, american idiot was one of the the first albums that you re- remember getting really into or, or buying with your yeah, own money. yeah yeah absolutely um so i was just wondering um then you mentioned as well that you were into kind of thrash as well for a while um mm-hmm. so how did green day and then thrash metal evolve into the style of music that you obviously put out now which is is rooted i would say if you don't mind me saying in the new wave of british heavy metal um what, what was the musical evolution from where you kind of started or what you got into very early until nowadays yeah yeah well green day so the american idiot was the first album i bought myself um just on the recommendation of somebody else that i was friends with at school who was like yeah it's really cool so all right i'll, I'll check it out um, but I'd always grown up around music. My parents were always big music fans. And growing up at my mum's house, I was I was always listening to Pink Floyd mainly, is what I remember. Right. Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, like lots of the, the grunge era stuff. Um, my dad was in the 80s, you know, like a total spotty thrash metal kid. So I I always had that there. Yeah. And I was always aware of it. And then when I was starting to, when I was getting into music, myself i would then start digging back through what my dad had and i just got into thrash metal through that and then more out of my own curiosity you start looking back at what inspired the thrash metal bands yeah and it it was just directly linked to the new wave of british heavy metal movement so then you don't have to look very far to find bands like diamond head you know you just look at the metallica garage days sort of set list and the tracks that they covered on that and you could discover quite a few cool new wave of British heavy metal bands from that, just from what Metallica did. But then if you just look back at what was inspiring them in that movement and all the thrash metal bands, that's where you get that, the the British stuff and the, the European stuff as well. Okay, so just think linking with the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, there's a movement, it's unofficial, just like the new wave of British heavy metal obviously was in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, I mean, Iron Maiden didn't go around back then in interviews claiming to be part of the new wave of british heavy metal it was it was more a creation right, of the yeah. press like, like all of these yeah. things are um yeah but there's a movement going on at the moment now called uh, informally the new wave of traditional heavy metal and that would yes. uh, encapsulate a lot of the bands we've talked about like haunt and night demon and seven sisters do you feel like you're part of a movement at the moment or is it something that's just kind of um a side point and you're just continuing to make the music you like uh, I, th- I think it's yes to both of those points really um we are definitely part of a movement and I think it would be fairly ignorant of us to deny that um, because of the fans of that movement have supported us so like so well and we've done so much in such a short amount of time because of that on the on the, the other side of the same coin I don't we don't consider ourselves a new wave of traditional heavy metal band um, the last thing that we want to do is release another album that sounds like Judas Priest or Iron Maiden. Yes. And that's not a dig at bands that do that, you know, quite actively. I don't think any of the guys in Riot City would be offended if you told them you sound like Screaming for Vengeance. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you sound like. But they do it in such a way that's so impressive. So you can't can't knock that. It's just that what we aren't, that's not what we're trying to do. 
Um, and I think if we went around and I started identifying ourselves as a new wave of traditional heavy metal band, that's that might be what people expect us to sound like. Yeah, okay. in a way. Yeah. Um, so yes and yes, but yeah, it's we we're still. I don't know. Maybe we're trying to do something ourselves that's very Seven Sisters, which might be quite almost impossible to do now, sort of 35 or 40 years later the, from when the, the new wave of British heavy metal thing kicked off. But we want we want something ultimately that just sounds like Seven Sisters in the end. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to that point. Well, but, t- t- I, I'd say I think you've nearly almost you managed to craft your own sound. So your vocals are very distinctive for somebody who never intended to be a singer. The, I know people compare you to the singer of Angel Witch a lot. Um, I think you kind of sound, to me, you, you remind me a lot more of the singer from uh, Witchfinder General, which were around okay. at the same time. I don't know if you've heard that comparison before, but that's kind of... No, no, not really. That, that's that's what kind of rings out in my mind. But, but other than that, I think Seven Sisters have managed to develop their own sound with the twin guitar and the melodies and your your kind of unique sounding vocals on top of that so i think you're you're pretty much almost there to me like uh, <laughs> i was only thinking to myself recently from the, from the album seven sisters to your most recent full album the cauldron and the cross to me it seems like you've skipped five albums if you're comparing something like iron maiden's traje- trajectory through like uh let's say from killers to seven son of a seven son which i know is, is one of your favorite albums i think you've almost jumped from killers to seven son in the space of two full albums right okay but yeah um sorry go on but just just with songs like cauldron and the cross on your latest release so like that's basically a 15 minute epic broken into two songs and that's mm-hmm. like miles away to me from what you were doing on your first album uh which right. was only two years yeah. prior to that yeah um i i guess so i think a lot of it is just us becoming braver in what we wanted to do. When we started out, we were always interested in doing the 15-minute epic or maybe one day we'll just write an entire album that is one song, you know, yeah. if you're, if we feel like really doing a number on our fans. But it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, we've always been interested in that side of things and I think it was just having a bit more faith in our own abilities and also not forcing the point. When you're trying to write progressive music like progressive influence music it's very easy to do it just for the sake of it but then it sounds like that yeah very very plainly sounds like that and that's just not interesting to listen to so when the idea comes along and the opportunity presents itself and all of a sudden you have a song that is 15 minutes long but it doesn't feel like that then that's you know that's just what happened you know I, i didn't set out thinking i have to write this 15 minute epic mm you know um it just ended up being that way um but yeah i mean i appreciate i take that as a compliment you know the with the jump between the album album one and album two i think we are progressing definitely and I, this next album that album number three will be even more of a jump i think uh i think i'm gonna i'm quite interested to see what people think of it because it's even further left field um it's even there's there's more stuff going on and it's not just i think we've we've always done pretty well with not just having like the obvious heavy metal tropes yeah going on in our stuff and there's obviously a bit more to it we've got a bit more there's a bit of prog in there there's some folk influence and you know i'm i'm massively into baroque music so like the classical music so i think i work a lot of that into the harmonies and the guitar harmonies and stuff 
there's just more of that there's just more stuff and it sounds even less like what you would consider a new wave of traditional heavy metal album to sound like i guess yeah i've seen you mentioned before you're quite into prog so you've mentioned bands like camel jetro tull genesis rush that type of thing um and Mm -hmm. you can clearly hear that more so i think in your latest album the cauldron and the cross um can i ask though um most of the influences i've seen you reference are the likes of iron maiden tin lizzie um king diamond that type of stuff uh riot um are you influenced by any modern bands or would you be influenced by any of your contemporaries or do you draw your influences mainly from the kind of classic artists? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. I get really inspired by bands about today, definitely. Um, whether they influence us or influence me musically, probably not because they're influenced by the same things that I'm influenced by. But I definitely, I definitely like watch a band live and just think, fuck, they're incredible. Like, I need to write some music right now. That's probably the big. That's probably my biggest muse is seeing bands live that are absolutely awesome. I remember watching Argus at um, Hell of a Hammerberg, which was they were just incredible. And I'd listened to them a little bit on record, but not that much. Um, not enough to know what their their songs, you know, uh, like properly. And just seeing them live was just crushing. They were so good. And that was, you know, I, I really remember like wanting to grab a guitar and write some music after seeing them, you know, it's so yeah, in my contemporaries are more inspirational in that way as in like, shit, they're really good. We need to up our game and get better. Um, but influence, I mean, I definitely get influenced by modern music outside of the heavy metal scene. Um, you know, I don't just listen to heavy metal all day. In fact, it's probably the genre that I listen to the least when i'm at home okay that's interesting so uh, yeah. anything in particular uh, that's current that would influence you um there's a guy I'll, I'll have to get his name up on spotify one sec um yes i do use spotify i'm supporting the enemy boo hiss oh sure listen i discovered you on spotify <laughs> so maybe that makes yeah, you feel a yeah. bit better <laughs> but um it's he's a a russian chap who's a piano player and he just he, he's done a solo album i think it was part of a group um but he's done a solo album which is self-titled it's just his name he's called i'm probably going to say this absolutely incorrectly but it's gleb kolgadin okay um and yeah he's a just a he's an insane piano player but he's got some really cool guests on his album he has steve hogarth doing a couple of vocal oh, tracks yeah. nice uh he's got jordan rudess on one track who's the keyboard player from dream theater um so yeah, that's a really interesting one. And it, it's mainly instrumental, apart from a, a couple of tracks with vocals. And that's very heavily piano-based. And he uses some synthesizer sounds in there as well. But that's, you know, I'm always on the hunt for this weird-sounding things. Very good. You mentioned Steve Hogarth there. Are you a fan of Marillion? Or would you listen absolutely. to Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Excellent band. And they're still going since the 80s as well. Um, mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, okay, so just moving on slightly so you've got uh sorry just moving past your first album you're you're going into the cauldron and the cross so the cauldron and the cross to me as i said at the start of the podcast it just sounded like this cool sounding heavy metal title of, uh for an album and then when i did mm-hmm. a bit of digging i realized that of course it's uh, a concept album and it's based on arthurian mythology would mm-hmm. you like to talk about that for a minute sure yeah the it's based around mainly just a one book that both Graham and I are big fans of, which is um, The Mist of Avalon, written by Marion Zimmer Bradley. 
and that's it's a telling of the tale of King Arthur, but from the perspective of the women in the story, um, and it's it's a really interesting take on it, and it's it's a it's a really highly acclaimed book, and we just we were both sort of reading it at the same time, and we were just like, well, wouldn't it be cool to write an album about it, you know? Because we struggled to come up with lyric concepts, so it was just that was just an easy one for us. But then it started; it ended up shaping the sound of the whole album. Um, I think we consciously went for more folky sounding things and folky sounding melodies and that sort of thing, just to fit in with the theme. And also, the the whole idea of the the, the more philosophical side of things really interested me in that story. And it, it's a lot of it is just an older way of life being taken over rather brutally by a new way of life and there's nothing that can really be done about it and it's just the way things happen sometimes and it was just quite interesting to to look at it and and to to write about it but it's not like full-on nerdy concepts you know we're not mentioning names really in in the in the lyrics or anything like that um we're more just touching upon the sort of the feelings and the and the sort of themes the philosophical themes that are present in that book and in that story yeah so you did you didn't have a, a song called king arthur or you know the knights of the round table or anything like that but you, yeah exactly you, yeah, you which... touch on it uh, and i just like to say that just through my research the cauldron obviously represents uh, paganism and the cross mm-hmm. represents catholicism or sorry christianity i should say which were the two dueling religions around that time um yeah so precisely. christianity had kind of come into england uh, is it around the fifth century ad or am i off by a bit you you Honestly, uh, you're probably better off speaking to Graham if you want okay. dates. Like, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm just the worst for that sort of stuff. So I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I had read that Graham writes a lot of the lyrics. So you, you come up with a lot of the music, but Graham like writes a lot of the lyrics for the band. Is that that's accurate? Is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He's yeah. really well read. Like he's, a, he's. I mean, if if you ever get to meet Graham, or if anybody who's listening who has met Graham you wouldn't really assume that he's like this super intelligent, well-read guy because, you know, he loves a beer and he's heavy metal and he plays the <laughs> guitar and stuff with his noisy pink guitar. But he is like really, he's a really eloquent chap beneath the hard exterior. Mm. So yeah, he's, he's really good at the lyrics side of things. I mean, he, come, he comes up with some musical ideas as well. It's just that I, I think I work best on my own with this kind of stuff so a lot of it is a lot of the music is me yeah so um i don't want to put words in your mouth here but just from my own uh, observation i i would see you more as a steve harris type of person who goes off and writes and you know writes and comes up with almost full songs to the band and then the band add, add their own flourishes um although steve, steve writes a lot of lyrics as well but to me from my observation you you kind of go off and you come up with like lots of almost complete ideas and then present them to the band and then graham would add lyrics and the other band members would add their own musical flourishes then would that be accurate it's pretty much what happens yeah um i because i've got the the ability to do like a, a really a fully realized demo of a song just on my own yeah normally what they're presented with the other guys in the band is is like a pretty full song it has like program drums and every all the guitar parts and bass and stuff like that, um, and yeah, uh, normally they'll get the song in like an instrumental version with possibly the melody played in on the, on a guitar for the vocals or something like that, and then we'll start to think about lyrical themes later on. Interesting. Okay, um, you mentioned if you ever get to meet Graham, um, 
how how are you interacting with fans do you you welcome it i I know at a lot of these gigs uh, fans are quite eager to go up and talk to the bands afterwards um and i myself do that sometimes if i have an like you know if i can pluck up the courage um but uh, i saw you at um uh you played the siege of limerick back in 2018 um, right, yeah, yeah. And I saw you all hanging out, and I didn't have the courage to go over and talk to you. I was like, ah, uh, just leave them alone. They probably don't want to chat to somebody like me. But how do you find interacting with fans? Is that something you welcome? Do you enjoy talking to fans? Yeah, it's 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 awesome because we are just fans as well. You know, it's not like we're these otherworldly beings. I mean, I mean, fucking hell, look at us. We're just four ugly blocks from like <laughs> predominantly West London. So it's not like we're we're, we're trying to be any, like cool or anything. We we are very much just here for the laugh and to to do some cool gigs every now and then um so yeah i really enjoy it and you get to meet some like super interesting people and it's it's really it's quite like it's really special when you start to see people that you recognize you know we've we've been fortunate enough to play in europe quite a lot over the past couple of years and play in germany quite a lot in particular and we're starting to see people coming back and which is just mental. You would never think of that when you start a band. I mean, I didn't anyway. When you start a band, that you would go to another country mm. across the sea and then you'd start playing gigs and you'd start to recognize people and they would come to maybe two or three shows on this little tour that you're playing and things like that. that, that it's just really cool. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for people coming to watch live music and enjoying and fans, you know, uh, I guess we do have fans. So <laughs> no need to be so like, modest about it. <laughs> I, I would, I would, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I'm eternally grateful for anybody that listens to our music and supports it because we'd never be able to do anything as cool as going to play shows in different countries and stuff without, without you, without anybody. So yeah, I, I've got all the time in the world, all the time in the world. Oh, very good. That's nice to hear. Um, so we talked about vinyl earlier on, and I, I, what something I've noticed, which I find interesting, is that uh, vinyl has obviously gone through a resurgence in the last few years, and and you as a band have released your releases on vinyl. Um, but I think it's it's funny to me that it's also coincided with the surge in streaming. Um, so Spotify and similar platforms are more popular than they've ever been, but I think vinyl is now more popular than it's ever been. In many years as well and i was wondering if you have any take on that so it seems people are getting into both streaming and um analog forms of music simultaneously probably not the same people but there's been a surge in both at the same time uh, what what would you attribute that to um i would i would say that there's a big there's a big portion of people that are buying vinyl now that are maybe new to buying vinyl that listen to most of their music on something like Spotify, but then feel like they want to support the band that they're listening to. So they'll buy something physical, whether it be a t-shirt or, or a vinyl. I think if you were ever present, presented with the option of buying a CD or buying a vinyl as a physical copy of an album to support a band, I think most people would choose a vinyl because it looks cool as well. And it just seems a little bit more special than a CD. Um, so I think maybe one is because of the other in some respect um but also i don't know people it trends just come back i guess um and you know vinyl players are pretty readily available nowadays and they're fairly decent quality and you don't have to spend a ton of money on them so it's it's just one of those things i think people are just into it and the whole aesthetic of it and the the old school aesthetic 
which people seem to cover as we delve further into like the technology these new advanced technologies and stuff like that i think it's one of those things it's like a it's almost from a listener's point of view just reclaiming a bit of an experience that you lose with the digital side of things yeah that's that's quite interesting i kind of think the same thing as well like i'd be quite um eager to to uh, because i know that uh, artists don't get much money from spotify i'd be quite eager to go and buy a t-shirt or buy a record if i could um and i think that somehow in in this in the digital world in in like the technology-based world that's kind of caught on and it, it's almost like i think it's some, sometimes it's kind of like a miracle that people have been like well we can get every song that's ever existed on our fingertips you know for a very very small amount of money but then people are also still now currently buying records and that's increasing year on year i think it's great to see mm. yeah yeah absolutely i think it, it just proves that that music although in a lot of when you sort of read the news especially at the moment and the arts might just seem wholly underappreciated um i think it's it's proof that people really do appreciate it and really do want to support any level of musician whether it be you know the rolling stones or some some project that just happened to pop up in a garage and you know they released a cassette tape or whatever you know i think it's it's just proof that that still happens and people still really care um but yeah, it is a it is a strange one. Like when we started out, we obviously we got vinyl again just because we wanted vinyl because it was cool, and it's like I want my stuff on vinyl because that's just the the dream. Um, and we were we played a gig. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was now. It it was like a a Butlins type thing okay. in the south of England. I think it was called Monsters of Rock. Um, we, we were on like a really early slot and we got totally done in by the, the, the we were the only band at the weekend that clashed with any other band and we happened to clash with Big Country Okay, and it was just like <laughs> come on, you know what I mean if, if all the ba- it, it, it was so stupid but we played, we, you know, it was a good gig we played in front of, you know, quite a few people and it was a fairly, it was m- mainly like an older demographic yeah. you know, it was the sort of, the dad rockers I suppose and we just at the time we only had seven inch vinyl with us it was kind of around the lost in time era yeah and we didn't have any cds or anything and we didn't sell a single vinyl we didn't sell anything we sold a couple of t-shirts right. and everyone was coming up like oh i want to buy a cd and it's like well we've only got vinyl so i don't have i don't have a record player anymore <laughs> so it's we were struggling to sell vinyl to like the older older like listeners that were around at the time when vinyl made its first was like when it, you know it was really big in the 70s and the 80s yeah and then you know, we play a gig at the Unicorn in in Camden or whatever, and we're selling vinyl. Like we, we can't sell them quick enough to twenty year old, you know, people and listeners. And it's just like it was such a weird moment to realize that it's like we can't sell vinyl to the people that probably have a huge record collection somewhere. Yeah. But then, like all these younger fans wanting to buy vinyl, like asking for it, it was it's quite funny. It is quite funny, actually. Yeah. So the, the 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 demographic in theory was correct, but in practice, none of those people can play any of those stuff. Uh, play it. Yeah, They're actually kind exactly. of in the past now because they wanted CDs, whereas vinyl yeah. is now the physical format that uh, younger people want, which is it's kind of come full circle, which is very strange. Um, yeah. One thing I noticed about uh, the the new wave of traditional heavy metal is. Um, the difference between this in my mind and 
when the new wave of British heavy metal came about is the accessibility of the bands. So like, for example, I can go on a Bandcamp page and I can buy a T-shirt or a vinyl record. Or uh, I'd just like to mention at this time that you actually produced the music that was the intro to this episode. <laughs> so thank, uh, yes, yeah, thanks yeah. for that, by the way. Uh, so you didn't hear it at the start, obviously, but the listener will have heard it. So uh, Kyle wrote a piece of music and uh, I, I asked him if he would... I basically I commissioned a piece of music from you uh, for the intro music to this episode. But like, if I if I were to think back to 1979, 1980, I couldn't have approached Saxon or Iron Maiden or Diamond Head or any of those bands and said, "Hey, look, I'm starting a podcast or a radio show. Let's say, uh, can you produce me a piece of music?" Or I couldn't have gone somewhere if they weren't playing a gig and just bought a T-shirt. Or I couldn't have gone and bought. Um, okay, I could have gone and bought a record. Let's forget about that one. But like, I think it's the accessibility of the bands that makes this for me quite special because everyone has mm. a Bandcamp page. You can almost directly support the artist if you want. You don't have to go through the likes of Amazon or anything like that. And to me, that's that's only kind of recent. Um, and I think it's a good movement. Like it's a it's a move in the correct direction where you can engage with the bands very very closely. And it's like it's because of the internet and it's because of the the, the movement in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, um, and I think Bandcamp is a fantastic platform to do that because it is almost a community in itself, as well as a listening platform, as well as somewhere that you can go to buy merchandise as well, um, and I think it's just it's really cool. I think it's it's vital yeah. to the scene. I I don't think it would I don't think it would survive without it. To be honest with you, um, because not everybody can be in Germany all the time to go to all these cool gigs. So it's like exactly. sometimes <laughs> some, sometimes the only way to support these bands of music that you really like is just to buy something, you know, even if it is just the digital copies of the songs from Bandcamp, but then you know it's going directly to them, which is super cool. And I think it this feels a little bit more special than, yeah, buying a CD from HMV or whatever, which... You know, we're lucky enough. We have our stuff in HMV, which is super cool. Um, and you know, you never dream of having your stuff in HMV. But we probably sold maybe like two CDs in HMV or something. Where <laughs> we, you know, we go out and we sell a decent amount, like when we're playing gigs everywhere. But I think people like to buy from the band and know it, know that it's going to the band, and it. it I think that helps. Definitely, and it creates that direct uh, connection with the band, which previously didn't yeah. exist. It just, it just wasn't a thing yeah. back. 10 even 10 yeah. years ago it really didn't exist um, yeah absolutely and, and one thing i've noticed is, is, is bands really especially during the lockdown stepping up their merch game and just releasing t-shirts and releasing uh songs and things like that um and mm -hmm. you've done something similar as well you, you released the campfire tales quite recently uh, i know it was mm -hmm. a it was a vinyl album but you released it digitally as well um yeah and i think i saw you saying on facebook that you you probably just broke even or maybe even lost a bit of money doing it but I, I, it seems like it was a labor of love uh, nonetheless absolutely I mean it all is to be honest with you we're not making money out of this we do well enough to be able to sustain the band as a business let's say um, so we don't pay any money out of our own pockets to do anything with the band but it's not like we're taking money out of it to s supplement our wages or whatever but it's um, yeah I mean the thing the, the whole idea with Campfire Tales was just something to do during lockdown for me and just a little experiment just to revisit some songs and because when i'm at home most of the time i noodle on my acoustic guitar rather than my electric guitar and i just ended up coming up with these arrangements just from playing them 
and then I thought, well, maybe I should just record them. And then, yeah, it was it was always intended just to be a digital release, but then a lot of people were asking for some sort of physical release, so we tried to make it special in some way. And, I mean, we we didn't, like, lose money per se. It was we, the money that was made from the digital sales mm. was went directly into funding the vinyl. Right. And then everything was covered. Okay. You know, so we I had to sort of calculate it down to you know the the postage costs and all that kind of and the cost of the packaging and stuff like that but we covered it just about because we it was you know it was difficult to keep it at a price where some someone will want to buy you know five songs um on a vinyl so you know which is why we did the patch thing and the artwork on the poster and stuff like that just to make it worth it but it was it was more just because people were asking for it and it would be nice to do so we did. But now we've got some arsehole who's putting it on Discogs for 135 quid. I saw that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's horrible, it's, horrible behavior. I don't want to keep calling him out on the Seven Sisters page because he, <laughs> he took it down. I'm saying he, it could be a she. Yeah. Um, they took it down off Discogs the first time we called them out. And now they've put it back up again recently with, for 135 instead of 125. So they've added a tenner on for the abuse that we gave them. <laughs> so it's like... But I mean... What can you do against that? I think any, you'd have to be stupid to spend that much money on that release. To be quite honest with you, no, it's not worth that much. Yeah, but it, yeah. It's, it's the it only thing I can is. think of is, is somebody who really wanted it who missed out and is such a fan of the band that they're willing to pay a premium on it. But it is disheartening to see that. I saw that unfolding on your social media, and I was just kind of like, what kind of asshole goes into it with those intentions? I'll buy yeah. this because it's going to be rare and then I can sell it at a premium. That's, it's mm. just a certain mindset that I, I just can't even relate to that. Yeah, it, it does. It, that's it. It just seems really unrelatable. Like you have to be totally disconnected from, from just enjoying music for what it is, I think. Because just to look at it like that as a business. Because not even we look at it like that. And we're, we, we are a business. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> and I was thinking, like, who, who was following the Seven Sisters page who had that mindset? Like, do these people go around following smaller bands who are releasing uh, very limited edition vinyl releases in the hope that they can purchase one and then resell it on like at more than twice the price? Who, who is I, I, this person? Yeah, I think from the looks of what he's selling or what they're selling at the moment, and that's kind of what they're doing. Um there's another there's a couple of like eps and sort of smaller releases up there for silly money okay so that yeah that must just be what they do which you know whatever you can't fight against it someone's gonna do it somewhere so yeah whatever okay well uh another thing i noticed when i was reading up about you you were uh voted the 48th favorite band in death forever magazine <laughs> that must have been quite the accolade for you because that, it, in that yeah. list were obviously all the old classic bands like iron maiden and judas priest and everyone else who's come before you yeah, that was totally bizarre, um, which is awesome. Like, thank you, readers of Death Forever. That's just incredible. But yeah, it was such a bizarre thing. I thought it was a joke. I thought someone posted it as a joke or something. And then, yeah, we, we were reading it and uh, just the names that were popping up. Which, But the, also, the first thing that I looked for were our contemporaries to see if anybody else is in there. And of course, like Visigoth was in there, Night Demon, mm. um you know, I think Eternal Champion might have been in there, and um, which is really cool to see. It's great. Know, yeah. There are young, there are younger bands. I say younger, you know, like bands that are about today, um, doing that stuff that are held in such a high esteem. You know, c- compared to the greats, it's really cool that that's happening. And that was that's 
really put a smile on my face just to see that there are other bands in the sort of scene that we knock around in that were also on that list. Um, but yeah, what that was just totally mental. It, uh, that's a German magazine, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite a popular one yeah. in, in Germany. For... Uh, it, it's great to see the forward-thinking uh, readership of Death Forever magazine voting four or five bands who've only been around for a few years alongside, you know, the all-time greats. Uh, so yeah, that's, totally. That's, 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 that's yeah. good. To, that's heartening to see. Um, so uh, what I wanted to mention actually was, so do you know the likes of festivals like Download or Vakken or the big metal festivals like that, Again and again, year after year, we're seeing the likes of, you know, Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, um, and those sorts of you know, Scorpions, whatever, those sorts of classic metal or rock bands headlining again and again. And I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think will happen or what do you foresee happening with the likes of those festivals? Let's say in 10 years time, when realistically those bands are not going to be able to headline any longer i mean at some point they're not going to be anyway maybe 10 years is you know it's an arbitrary figure but is there anyone you see stepping up into those slots or or do you have an issue with the likes of those bands taking up those slots still or do you think that they're entitled to it based on the hard work they've done for 40 or 50 years yeah i i understand why they're headlining of course because they're the they're the big draw people want to see them live maybe they're their favorite band and they've never had the chance to see them um i mean if they're still going and they're still relevant and putting out music and putting on a good show there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be doing that that's entirely their prerogative you know and i and that's that's cool um i think i don't know what might have to happen is once all these once all these groups start retiring is that it might it might just force the hand of people booking these festivals whether they just give up and so uh, we had a good run of it we'll call it a day and away it goes or they start using their initiative and then just have to put faith in some bands to really step up and i think there are there are plenty of bands that could step up i could see visigoth on a bigger stage headlining or maybe not headlining right now but certainly impressing a lot of people because they've got such a presence when they play live they've have that big sort of they they have what it takes to sort of be higher up on the bill and engage people you know the the singer is just absolutely awesome for that yeah absolutely. Um, there there are definitely bands around that can do that um it's just difficult to break through that wall because there's still such an old school mentality even today within the business because a lot of it is run by people that have been doing this for a long time and they still even though you know, think you have to embrace the the newer ways of doing things just to stay alive. They they can still operate in a way that means that basically you can't do anything unless you've got the funding behind you, and you know the right people. Mm. That's that's basically what it boils down to: is that you've got to have the right connections. Somebody's got to take an interest in you, and then you've got to have a shit ton of money behind you to be able to do these things. Yeah, because a lot of the tours that you want to go on cost you know hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars or euros or whatever to do just just to the cost of these things if you're going to do it on the scale that these bigger artists are doing it on um and there's just not there's not the kind of money behind newer bands to do that especially in the heavy metal scene yeah. i don't think i mean there's a there's a ton of smaller festivals and it's really good you know to for for bands like us because we can jump on like a circuit almost and play a couple in a year and that's that's awesome you reach a lot of people doing that way but to play like a bigger festival to break onto doing something like Wacken, you're only ever going to get on like a smaller stage 
mm. um, which still might be the biggest crowd you'll play in front of that year. Uh, that, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but there's there's a whole way of operating that is dying out. Yes, and the way that the old rock bands operated is just not viable anymore because it costs a lot of money, and there's just not that amount of money knocking around anymore. Uh, for or at least record companies are clinging onto their money harder than they ever have done <laughs> because it's you know they're having to pull in from every revenue stream of a band now to to claw back costs. Mm. You know, before you would never ever encounter a record company trying to take money off you from your touring mm. uh, costs and from your merch and stuff like that. But bands are on what they call like 360 deals, which is where the record company takes a cut of everything that they make, not just from the records that they're pressing. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's... I think for that to happen, there would have to be a change in the business, and it's whether the business is willing to do that, to be honest with you. That's that's what I wonder. I, I wonder, you mentioned the smaller festivals, like, and I, I wonder how do we bridge the gap in 10 years' time between uh, Up the Hammers or Keep It True, where, like, the likes of bands like you or, or similar bands are, are playing on the, you know, the... the um, not the headline slots, but in some cases even the headline slots. But they're playing in the you know the earlier slots. How do we bridge the gap between those festivals and the much larger festivals? Who will will realistically they're going to want to stay in business after Iron Maiden or Ozzy Osbourne or whoever is mm-hmm. finished? But how do we bridge the gap between what's happening currently with the smaller festivals and the absence of headliners in the larger festivals in years to come? It's it's going to be interesting to follow. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to be honest with you. I think a lot of the responsibility lies on those bigger bands now. They have the power to pluck a name out of the ether yeah. and turn them into superstars. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. If if tomorrow I made and turned around and said, yeah, Visigoth are well good, check them out, everybody on the planet would start listening to Visigoth. And all of a sudden they would have the oomph behind them to be able to then go on and headline or play on the main stage of these bigger festivals. So I think it's there is a responsibility for these older bands. I think whether it's through them themselves or just their whole brand mm-hmm. and their management sort of championing some newer bands to come about, I think that's a really good way of doing it because, you know, just getting on a support slot for one of these bands will be life-changing. The problem, though, I think Visigoth have is none of the people in the band are related to Steve Harris. Ah, uh, yes, that is a very big, <laughs> very big problem. Yeah, no, nah, I mean... I mean, yeah, it's it's a tough one. It is kind of like that. That's just the way it's always been. It's not. It's no. It's, no, it's nothing new, and it will continue to be that way. I suppose it, it's all about who you know and, and your connections. But, it, but it, yeah, it, it bothers yeah. me personally that like the likes of Iron Maiden were brought out on tour by Kiss and Judas Priest back in the day, but mm. in in the last twenty years, I haven't seen them reciprocate that. I've seen them invite people like Marilyn Manson and Killswitch Engage and. Other bands like that who were, frankly, the wrong demographic for the type of music that they create. And I wonder sometimes, are they trying to bring in completely different fans, younger fans of Killswitch Engage or, or Marilyn Manson in order to, you know, flesh out the crowd? I, I just don't understand the logic of it sometimes. Like, it, it's puzzling to me because I don't I want to watch Marilyn Manson or Killswitch Engage, to be honest. No, yeah. No, I, I think it is pretty much that. It's That's a business decision. And I don't think it's really made by them. I'd be surprised if they actually had any say in who supports them, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, it's that is just pure business and 
you know, they'll they'll build a hype band at the moment. You know, they'll be selling a decent amount of records and people know who they are. And yeah, they'll generally, they'll have a younger demographic or it'll just be something totally different to what I made and normally plays in front of. So that's why. Um, but yeah, I think it'd just be really nice just for one of these bands just to go, you know what, let's just... You know, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be Iron Maiden. It could be somebody like Diamond Head, just to take out a band that's, you know, one of us that just sounds like they do or they did back in the day, and just champion them a little bit. That would be such a massive thing. Yeah. Um, it just it doesn't take much, but the business totally gets in the way of it. You know, we've had some cool opportunities come up that seemed really genuine at the time, and then all of a sudden you get this brick wall of no, you have to buy on to get onto the tour. Right, and then all of a sudden, somebody, somebody somewhere makes a decision that you know they have to buy on, and then all, of, and then it just gets really sour because you know I'm not going to pay to be on a tour. We might have to if at some point you know we decide that we need to take the next step. We may have to do that. We may just have to bite the bullet and pay to be on a tour. But I think anybody that makes another artist pay to be on their tour is a fucking crook. No, it's scummy. Scummy, I, I scummy behaviour. I know it's been going on forever. Yeah. And, it, but I hate it. And I think just it's just the worst thing. And like you say, don't forget where you came from. Because yes. somebody at some point lent you a hand. So it's just nice to reciprocate that. But it, it's the business. I think I think Motley Crue are quite famous for making artists uh, pay to be on their tours. Um, and they don't even apologize for it in, in the media yeah. when they're confronted about it either. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I just wanted to, yeah, sorry, one other thing I wanted to mention is like, obviously the old bands are, are dying out. Um, or not dying out, sorry, like, but you know, not to be too crass about it, but eventually a time will come when they won't be able to perform but then you have the likes of the Dio hologram and, and things like that coming up um, oh yeah do you, do you have any opinions on that or it shouldn't happen that is my opinion it just shouldn't happen not, yeah um because you know Dio's not around to give his consent yeah think about his artistic integrity you know it's it might just what what would he say in that position i don't i mean i i would never want a hologram of me being on stage I mean, that's just my opinion. Not that I'd ever get to the point where I'd warrant a hologram of me being on stage. But <laughs> well, it's, it, it's it's documented now on this podcast, so that's your yeah, that's your lack yeah. of consent right there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just think of the artist. That's just again, it's just pure business. Mm. Somebody somewhere wants to make some money out of Dio's name, and you know, I have no problem with you know his old band members and things like that playing Dio disciples, songs. whatever. Yeah, that's okay. I yeah, think that's okay. That's yeah. fine, and you know they. And they can go out and they can still, you know, job on those songs. That's fine. That's cool. Um, but yeah, bringing out the hologram machine is just a bit, it's just a step too far. Okay. Okay. So just moving on, obviously you've been affected by the coronavirus. You had a tour planned with Night Demon, which I don't know, has it been cancelled or postponed? It's just been totally cancelled. Yeah. I think they they had plans like far into the uh, 2021 so they it was not something that we could reschedule okay that's a shame because that would have been a great pairing um yeah but just in general in the future like we don't really know what's going to happen but it like people are talking now and, and some of them have even happened a bit like socially distanced concerts is that something a band at the level of seven sisters could participate in or do you feel that that's something that like 
I mean, look, like, uh, to put it another way, like the Rolling Stones could have a socially distanced concert, presumably, and still make money from it. Is it yeah. something that's an option for a band at your level, or will you just have to wait until you're able to have full shows, full uh, venues again? I think we're just going to have to wait. Um, yeah, it's not something that I think would be financially viable, really, for the kind of venues that we're playing as well not just us as as the band, also the venues that we have to work with. I just don't think it'd be viable. Okay. To be like, I really don't. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of depressing to think about it, really. Um, the, the silver lining is, of course, we all have more time to write music and release more music and, and, and just sort of keep on that way. But yeah, the, the future of live shows is really uncertain, especially especially in England in this country in Britain it's it's been an absolute mess um and it uh, which is putting it nicely uh so i mean i just have no idea what's going to happen we we none of us have any ideas what, what's going to happen and we have no plans for 2021 in terms of gigging as of yet there's been murmurings of things that might happen but again it's all like you could make a you could plan for a full tour it might just fall through again Mm. we just don't know what's going to happen as i see dates for 2021 being released i'm looking at it going to be honest i'm not going to buy a ticket because i don't i I just don't know and i don't think anybody knows it's just hoping against hope at this point yeah it's it's a really weird time i think for 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 the arts in general um um, oh, for everyone, just like n- what you would consider normal life, I suppose. One thing this has made me realize during this time, because <laughs> uh, I, I I worked in a guitar store for almost four years. Yeah. And at the beginning of this year, before the, the, the tour with Haunt, I, I left that job to become self-employed as a musician. Oh. L- literally the worst timing in possibly history ever yeah. i don't know especially re- recent history um so yeah i'm stuck back at my grandparents at the moment which is a bit of a nightmare oh. but like it's yeah i think um for a lot of people one thing it has made me realize is that uh, having all this spare time is a bit of a, a poison chalice really because i thought oh great I'm, i've got all day every day to just focus on my music and stuff like that mm. and you know it's it's almost having too much time yeah in a way uh it, it's it's been really weird and, and really difficult to deal with and i can only like i mean in a way luckily for me i wasn't an established self-employed musician jobbing within the industry i've got plenty of friends who are mm. and they are suffering massively yeah like, because the, the whole year is just gone and maybe next year of work which yeah they live even the real, even the pretty successful ones live fairly hand to mouth with their mm. with the money that they're getting in and stuff. So and it's, yeah, like mortgages and houses and all that to pay for. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Okay, but look on a, on a less depressing note, you sound like from what you've said, you have the bones of a new Seven Sisters album written and even some do. of it recorded. So is there anything about that you'd like to discuss? Sure. Yeah. Well, we're we're going in to record the drums next week, um, which. Yeah, which I'm I'm really excited about. I'm sort of happy for Sam to finally do something because he was supposed to be on the Night Demon tour and do that whole thing. So it'll be nice for him to actually. We bet we haven't even rehearsed with him. Oh, so, so this, this is your new drummer year. who recently joined. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so um, Sam, our new drummer, he we rehearsed with him before we went on tour with Haunt just to make sure that you know we were we were gelling and things were going to be okay once Steve had left. 
Um, but since then, you know, I got back from the, the tour because I was driving Haunt after we got off just for the last few days. Mm. And I got home and then within like a couple of days, I was back up north and then this whole lockdown thing went. So we haven't we haven't seen each other in, in for most of the year. So yeah, Sam goes in to record the drums. Um, I suppose, well, we've got a name. The It's going to be... Uh, part one of like a two album concept oh interesting okay which which i've sort of written myself um and it's it's we're going sci-fi it's going to be a sci-fi concept excellent and i i won't go into details of the concept just because i i've i still can't explain it very well to other people <laughs> yet no worries um, <laughs> but um the album will be called the shadow of a fallen star all part right one is that an exclusive <laughs> That's an exclusive. Wow. Yeah, I've not told anyone about that. <laughs> an exclusive we'll, for uh, Becca Metal. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next, next Seven Sisters, um, Seven Sisters album, The Shadow of a Fallen Star, Part One, and yeah, we'll 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 get it finished, recorded this year easily, and then um, we're looking to release it, hopefully in the first like half of next year, uh, which I don't see there being any problems with doing that. So, yeah, new music on the way. Um, with it being sci-fi, it's a lot darker. I, I definitely I'm, I'm interested to see what people think we've we sort of spread our wings a little bit more with the uh you know with exploring different sides of you know slower tempos faster tempos you know bits and bobs here and there there's no 50 minute epic um but hmm. there's there's you know there's a as always a variety like we're really i'm really conscious of making sure that there's a variety of material within the album yeah um but yeah i'm excited but it's going to be, like I say, a two a two part concept over two albums. Excellent, that sounds very exciting. Um, I I must say uh, I did mention earlier I saw you at uh, the Siege of Limerick and that was a outstanding show. Um, that that uh, festival or you know event isn't really uh, geared towards bands of your nature. It's more to do with um, extreme metal. Uh, and I was yeah. surprised to see you on the bill. Um, uh, but you weren't the only one. Like I was really, I, I mean, I was super pleased, but I was surprised that John asked us to play, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's... because the, really, the only other bands I really wanted to see were Primordial. I, do you know Primordial, the Irish? I do, yeah, of, very much. Yeah, yeah. Black metal or pagan metal band. And then there was a band called, um, oh, shit, what were they called? There was an Irish band. They've since broken up. They were like new wave of traditional heavy metal style stuff as well. Uh, their name escapes me but they've since broken up anyway but I, I really only watched about three bands on that bill just because it's not really mm -hmm. my type of music but the fact that you were right. playing Primordial were playing uh, Stereo Nasty was the other band sorry uh, Stereo Nasty yeah they're, yeah they're good guys they're really yeah, good yeah. Um, and I, uh, in preparation for this I was like looking back on that gig I was like Jesus that was a fantastic show and then I was like am I looking through rose tinted glasses here so I actually <laughs> had a couple of clips a couple of video clips and I was like it turns out I wasn't looking through rose-tinted glasses, or there was no tint on the glass at all. It was just plain glass. You were absolutely fantastic at that show. Oh, thank uh, you, and man. I have to say, your vocals were excellent on The Cauldron and the Cross, which is the song I happened to film. Um, so from somebody who was never supposed to be the singer of the band, who was probably uh, worried about it singing or self-conscious about it, I thought you did an excellent job on that song, uh, both of the parts of that song, which are very demanding. Um, and I have the thank video you. evidence to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I re I really hate looking back at videos of us playing live because it's like you, but you know from the point of view of the person playing it, you over over analyze always. Yeah. It's like oh that was the wrong note. Oh no, my voice is a bit flat there. Oh. So I just prefer to leave it in the 
in you know in my own memory of what happened at the gig you know if it was a really good show sometimes i've thought oh that was great and then i'll see a video pop up of the show and it's absolutely <laughs> it's atrocious and i'm like oh well in fairness yeah. so do i and I, I don't really i'm not one of these people who films an entire gig or anything like that but i like to keep a, a small little live document of a show that i've been at just even to remember what i've been at but i rarely look back at them but i only did because i knew i was going to be talking to you and i was like no that was that was just as good as i remember so yeah awesome well, that was thank an you. excellent show um so i'm just going to wrap it up here i just like to say um so obviously you you refer to yourself as a heavy metal band um and you you know your your classic style heavy metal and when i tell my friends i li- listen to heavy metal a lot of them don't listen to it they think of things like slipknot or they think of things like modern sounding metal and if i played them something that i like they'd be like that's not heavy metal um do you ever get that as a band that sounds like you do because i think to me the the term heavy metal has evolved so much especially in the last 20 years to the point where now heavy metal is almost seen as death metal or extreme metal have you ever been called out as not being heavy metal (laughs) uh no never been called out as not being heavy metal but yeah, I do encounter that problem when trying to describe what we sound like or what we do to people that aren't into heavy metal. Um, because like you say, it is such a broad term and people that, are, that aren't into it really are sort of mostly aware of the more extreme side of things because that's probably the stuff that you would perhaps encounter in a news story or something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the way that I sort of, my, my fail safe normally when i'm talking about what we sound like it's like oh we just sort of sound like iron maiden we, i mean we sound nothing like iron maiden yeah we sound nothing like iron maiden really when you think about it and when when you really know what we both sound like but that to a lot of people will just confirm that oh you sing in with a clean voice and it has some guitars in it sort of thing you know that tends to do the job that's it clean voice and guitars that's how i kind of try to describe the, the music i like as well to people uh but i always i always battle back against those people who tell me what i listen to isn't heavy metal because it is and what came later <laughs> is a subgenre of what came before um yeah, which is what exactly. i always like to say so look okay i'm gonna leave it there so look thanks a million for that i really appreciate you being a guest on feckin metal uh this is the second episode and i really appreciate your time i know you've given up your time this evening for that um is there any social media or anything like that you'd like to plug before we leave? Oh, I mean, you can find us pretty easily if you just type in Seven Sisters Heavy Metal. It all pops up. Our Facebook and Instagram and all that. We're, we're on Bandcamp and things like that as well. And we're on Spotify too if you want to ch- try and check us out there. Just Seven Sisters Heavy Metal tends to do the job and you can find us. But yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a nice chat. Okay, cheers, Kyle. Thanks very much. Uh, this has been it for feckin metal episode two so feck off